So good. Amen. Hasn't God been good? Been good. I want to begin with just a brief programming note. You may have seen some signs around the church. I want everybody to mark your calendars for November 12th at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That's a Sunday afternoon, November 12th, right here in The Rock for a meeting I'm simply calling a vision casting meeting. God has been good uh, to our local body of believers here at First Baptist. And as a pastor, I'm always trying to discern with God's people, okay, Lord, what's next? I want to share at this meeting uh, some vision about exactly that, what may be next, what God may be leading us toward. Uh, You do not have to be a member to attend. All are welcome. Child care will be provided. Uh, But I want us to dream together about what God may have in store for us as a church. So again, that date is November 12th, Sunday afternoon, 4 o'clock. You won't want to miss it. Well, we have been in a series in the Gospel of Matthew for a few weeks. And uh, Jesus is now preaching the last sermon before his death, burial, and resurrection. This is it. And he preaches it from the Mount of Olives. It starts in Matthew 24. So if you want to go ahead and be making your way to 24 and 25, they call it the Olivet Discourse because he's preaching from the Mount of Olives. You could just call it the, the Sermon from the Mount of Olives, whatever. He's, he's talking about the end times. He's, he loves his disciples. And he says, hey, here's what's going to happen in a generation. Here's what's going to happen in the next 70 years. And here's what's going to happen when I return. And they're like, when, when are you going to return? Jesus is like, I don't know. No one knows. Only the Father knows, right? So your job is to be ready. And he goes through all this stuff. And basically last week, if I lost anybody in Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse, this is where we landed. That the only way to get ready for Christ's return is to what? Is to stay ready. The only way to get ready is to stay ready. And that's what, he, that's, that's what he's saying in Matthew 24. Be ready. Stay alert. And then he illustrates it with at least five stories. I, I count five parables, illustrations. We're going to look at one of them today. He talks about how some people are, going to, some people are not going to be ready for the return of Jesus because Jesus comes way sooner than they think. Others are going to be caught off guard because he comes way later than they think. And he tells a story about each of those. To those who are going to be caught off guard because Jesus comes way sooner than they think, he tells that little parable at the end of Matthew 24 about the wicked steward. Master says, I'm going away. Leaves the servant in charge. And instead of helping the place thrive and, 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 and do right and good and be wise and faithful, instead it says he starts to get drunk with everybody and beating up the fellow servants. Jesus says, that man's going to be in for a rude awakening when he comes back. He says, the reason he did that, he's like, ah, my master's delayed in coming. You know, he hadn't come back. Jesus says, that's how it's going to be for a lot of people. Ah, It's been 2,000 years. He still hadn't come back. It's probably not going to happen. And he'll come sooner than we think. Then he follows that with another story about people who, Jesus comes way later than they think, and he tells uh, the story about the 10 bridesmaids. Do you remember this? This is the beginning of Matthew 25. He tells the story about these 10 bridesmaids. He says, five were wise and five were foolish, and in the wedding customs of that day, long story short, because he was so, no, 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 much later than they thought, the foolish bridesmaids uh, uh, were, were, were left out of this great wedding feast. He says, his point is, be ready. Stay ready. Now, when you talk about end times, I said this last week, there are some people, they just shut down. They're like, oh, the whole thing gives me anxiety. I don't know, right? 
Other people are like, here we go. I got my charts. Like, I am ready. Let's go. And they want to talk about the millennial kingdom and the rapture and the tribulation. And I think he's going to come, become before the millennium. That makes me pre-millennial. But I also think you might say he's coming before the tribulation. I'm pre-tribulation, pre-millennial. Other people are post-trib, pre-millennial. Some people are like, the whole thing's symbolic. I'm amillennial. And there are some that think the millennial kingdom has already started. That's post-millennial. I thought I had all the viewpoint. And, and by the way, good, faithful Christians land on all these different places. If you want to do a deep dive in this, just know I want to do that too. A sermon's probably not the time to do it. Maybe a classroom or a, or a, a video setting, somewhere you can take a nap. But I want to, I want to do it right, at some point, and I'll get to it. But here's the thing, pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, and that's just about one contested section of Revelation 20. I thought I had the major out, positions outlined, and Dr. Ed Hayes, Pastor Emeritus here, pulled me aside last week, and he said, I'm pan-millennial. I thought I'd heard it all. Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. Now, Dr. Hayes, a man who I, I have incredible respect for, says he's panmillennial. I said, well, what is that? He goes, it's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> like, all right, all right, all right. You win. <laughs> it is. So what I, I, I promised I would do this quickly, and I hope I'm keeping this promise. One last word on your, by the way, the study of last things, how it's all going to end. History has a beginning. History has a middle. History has an end. The study, in all seriousness, of how, and, and I, I do take this stuff seriously because the Bible matters to us. We do want to know. What we allow for is different Christians can both love the Word of God, thrill to the Word of God, both agree it is the infallible Word of God. But there are some future predictions that are just, with good biblical backing, I can kind of see either way. It's, it's hard to know exactly who's reading it right on that. And we agree to disagree on, on those things. And that's okay. It's not a salvation issue. So I love, if you're curious where our church stands on these things, we take as our statement of faith a document called the Baptist Faith and Message. We adopted that. This is our statement of faith. It's really well written. You just go to, go to our website uh, and uh, uh, click About and Beliefs and you can find it. Or just Google the Baptist Faith and Message. And in simple terms, they walk you through. And I want you to see what a broad brush they paint with when it comes to what we believe about last things. The Baptist faith and message is divided into, you know, the nature of God and, and God's word and, and, and man, and here's how uh, uh, humans are saved and all this. When they get to section 10, this is their wording on last things. Here it is, section 10. That used to be Twitter. Now it's 10. Uh, last things. Here, here's how it goes. I love this. Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, or panmillennial. Tell me you can't find a home here. God, in his own time and in his own way, will bring the world to its appropriate end. Don't you love that? When's it going to happen? In his own time. But how? In his own way. Will it be appropriate? Yes. Because he's God. Okay. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. Why is that in there? Because that's what everybody agrees on. You won't be able to miss it. Visible, personal. The dead will be raised. Will they be raised in stages? Will the righteous be raised and glorified? And then later, after the millennial kingdom, will the unrighteous be raised to face judgment? The dead will be raised. See, that's all. We know that. Christ will judge all men in righteousness. And we know that we who are saved have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. We stand righteous before God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And those who reject Jesus, well, the unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous and their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. Again, if you want to read more about that, you just go about beliefs, and you can do a deep dive. There's all sorts of scriptures you can go into. The only way to be ready, Jesus says, is to stay ready. Then he tells this story, 
right? And we're going to start in verse, around verse 14. He, then, then he tells a whole new story. This one is not so much his emphasis, be ready, stay alert. Hey, be ready, right? But what does it mean to stay ready? Now, that's a great Christian question. Those are words that sound a lot alike. That is a great question that every Christian should think about. What does it mean? I mean, to, to, when you hear Jesus is coming back, does that mean we're all supposed to join some doomsday cult and we go climb up on a mountain with extra ammo and some water and wait for the fireworks? Like, no, the answer is no, we don't do that, by the way. Uh, does it mean we sort of drop out of society? I mean, if Jesus is coming back, do we just think, well, we're just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, Jesus is coming and all this good? No. Jesus says, this is what it's like. This is what I want you to be about. It's not quietism or being passive. It's not just saying, well, I punched my ticket to heaven, so, you know. No, 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 no. Active, working. And that's where I think analogies about the return of Jesus fall short. And we got to look at the one he gives. Because the analogies about the return of Jesus, um, okay, uh, what does it mean to stay ready? What does it mean to stay ready? Did any of you have a teacher in school who used that most dreaded of torture devices called the pop quiz. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, yeah. The problem with the pop quiz is you never knew when it was going to pop, right? And it might be sprung on you at a time you least expected. And the reason she did that, of course, is so that she wanted to know not could you get ready, could you cram, but could you stay ready? She could know if you did the math homework. She could know if you did the reading because at any moment she could pop it on you. The problem with that analogy, so stay ready, Jesus is coming. The problem with that analogy is the kingdom of heaven is not a matter of head knowledge. It's not some quiz. A lot of people think that. Ah, you live the best you can, you get to the gates of heaven, and then you have to answer a few questions from St. Peter or something. Listen, if you're in Christ, the test, it's, it's been, you've passed. He, Christ passed the test on your behalf and has imputed his perfect A plus grade of righteousness to you for your salvation, and he took upon himself your punishment for sin. So it, it, if that's all it is, and we're all just sort of sitting around waiting for it, that, that's not it. So that analogy falls short. Another analogy people might use is, um, and this is one we're familiar with in Alabama, stay ready. Why? Because of weather, right? How would James Spann preach this sermon? Huh? I mean, suspenders out, the whole thing, right? What is it? Stay weather aware. Get in your safe place. Uh, make sure you're ready because it'll be too late to prepare when it's coming. The time to get ready is now. Stay ready. And so you say, okay, the coming of Jesus Christ, stay ready. But here's why that analogy falls short. It's like, but that's just it. A tornado is coming to bring devastation and destruction. If you're a child of God, don't listen. Jesus Christ is not coming to bring all this devastation and destruction. He's coming to build, to establish. When Christ returns, if you're, listen, if you're a child of God, if you're a blood-bought, born-again child of God, why should you fear his coming? He, there's no safe place you need to go run and hide. God is your safe place. He's everything. So that's why I, that analogy doesn't work either. That, this idea that, well, you know, be ready for Jesus because he could come anytime and sort of surprise you like a mean teacher with a pop quiz or no, what does it mean? What does it look like for a Christian? How should we live ready? What does it mean to live a life? What is it like? Jesus says, it's like this. The kingdom of heaven. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, 
to another two, to another one. I'll read, it in, I'll read this text in its entirety, but I have to just pause right here. Some of you have a footnote. Uh, unfortunately, the, this word talent is just sort of left untranslated. Talent, the way we use talent today is not the way they use talent then. A talent is a, a, a sum of money. It is, in fact, a massive sum of money. We don't have any currency that I know of in modern days called talent. We think of talent as like juggling or something, you know, while riding a unicycle, um, it, right? So a talent back then, in fact, some of your, trans- like the NIV translates it bags of gold. That probably gets, gets the idea. Most all of you will have a footnote in there. When it says talent, you, you'll see the footnote, and it talks about how many decades you would have to work to make a talent. This is a massive, staggering sum of money. Gazillions. Let's, let's say in modern terms, this is like he gave one servant $5 million. One servant $2 million. Because when you think he gave him a talent, you might think, here you go, here's, here's 20 bucks, you know. I'll be going away on a journey. No, this is no small sum. This, whoever this master is, he is unspeakably wealthy. He's able to entrust this servant with five million and two million and one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with him and he made five talents more. Wow. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent, hmm, went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with him. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. You gave me five million to invest. I've got it now to 10 million. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, it's identical. Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received, this is masterful storytelling, isn't it, right? He sets you up, right? So far, it's just the same. But now, what about that fellow that buried it? He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Really? I mean, so far, it kind of seems like he's pretty generous, isn't he? What? I don't know. It just seems odd that he would, okay, uh, I mean, he's full of joy. He's rewarding these. Ah, yeah, you're a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you'd ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whoa, what an ending. I mean, there's all that stuff about the rewards and the joy and then this like really strong warning. What do you make of this? Well, here's what I make of it. We can look at the story in three sections. The start of the story, the reward of the righteous, the lie of the enemy. Let me walk us through briefly the start of the story, the rewards of the righteous, the lie of the enemy. If you're a note taker, you're like an outline. That's what that is. The start of the story, the rewards of the righteous, 
the lie of the enemy. I want you to notice, I'm gonna I'm point them out quickly, four things in the start of the story. First, what's the it? This one I can do quick. Uh, look at verse 14. It will be like a man going on a journey. I know this is the most obvious, but start of the story. It will be like a man going on a journey. <laughs> what, what's it? <laughs> you have to look up a few verses, and in the story before this, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like. So the it there is the kingdom of heaven. This is a story Jesus says, about what it's like in the kingdom of heaven. That should excite you. That means that, y'all, this is our future. We have to decide what kind of servants we're gonna be. This immediately means it applies to us. This isn't just something for the disciples all those years ago. When you think about the kingdom coming, what does that do to your heart? Does that get you excited? Does that make you think, okay, what do I need to be doing? Second thing, and this one's easy. Who's the man who, this man going on a journey? Who do you think that represents? Uh, you can't get this wrong. It's not a trick question. Say it on the count of three. The answer is always Jesus. One, two, three. Hey, you got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Jesus said the whole context of the Olivet Discourse is that he's going away and he will return. Here's how to prepare for the return. So the man going on the journey, the master, represents, well, the Lord. That's the, the word Lord and master there mean the same thing. It represents him. Good. What are the talents? I already said they're a massive sum of money. And here's where I think it starts. You almost get like, I think we learn more about the master in this parable. I've always thought, you know, some of you have heard this story since you were a little kid. You heard about it, right? One guy gets five, one guy gets two, one guy buries it in the ground. If you bury it in the ground, Jesus would be very disappointed. So use what you have for God, snack time, right? And I always thought, okay, I mean, that's not bad. We should use what we have for God. But it's not until this go round that I've realized how profound this story is. It's about the character of the master, he gave one five, one two, and one one. Look at that phrase. Each what? According to his ability. How beautiful is that? This is not just some stern master. This is, this is somebody who, he knows these workers. He knows them intimately. He knows. He's like, listen, I know exactly how much potential this guy has. He, he can handle $5 million. Two million guy, if I gave him five, it would destroy him. But if I gave him one, he would be idle. It would, be, it, would be, it would be undervaluing what this guy can do. I believe in him. I know he can do it. It's like he wants to draw out the best. And then the one million guy, that's just right for him. It's not harsh. It's not, I just want to point out, the kingdom of heaven is no cookie cutter factory. The master of the household is generous, but he also really knows these guys. And then uh, what does each do? You know, one received the five, went, did you see this, at once and traded with them and made more. And the guy with the two went at once. What does that tell me? That tells me that these guys were diligent. They were uh, excited. All that investing takes study and takes work. But above all, it tells me this. They knew that with this $5 million gift and this $2 million gift, they knew what it was. They knew it was the opportunity of a lifetime and they weren't going to squander it. I mean, Right? Your master is going to give to you $5 million. I'm going away on a journey. Can you imagine? I'll get to that later. You would realize, whoa, this is like generation changing money. And I, I, like, like they're after it. They're, they're going to go do it at once it goes, right? It's an opportunity and they don't squander it. The only, the only way I can figure out you would bury it in the ground is you don't realize what an opportunity this is. This is a once in a lifetime. Christian, do you see the application here? Do you know what you've been given in your salvation? This is like a once in a lifetime opportunity. 
or not like everything you have is a gift from God. How are you going to use it? Does it not excite you to go, don't, don't, don't squander it and put it in the ground. Think, what am I going to do? You've been given a gift today. You just think about this day, 24 sparkling hours, 24 hours sparkling like diamonds. And inside those diamonds are encrusted 60 perfect little jewels called minutes. What a gift. It's the most priceless thing there is. The gift of today. It's such a, right now is the gift. This is a gift that came from God's hand. Your life right now, today, is a gift and it came from God. It's a gift. That's why right now, that's why we call it the present. Sorry. Everybody clear though? It's a gift from God. So only someone foolish would, would say, I'll get to that tomorrow. They saw it for what it was. This is the opportunity. The mercy God has given you. This is the opportunity. The gospel he's put in your heart. Now's the time. Time is short. Hell is real. We got to share, okay? But the other guy, if you start thinking, $1 million, I got to take care of this guy's $1 million. Ugh, just more work for me. Is every day a gift? Every day is more work is what it is. Another day. So he takes one talent. I can get to it whenever I want. As long as it doesn't get stolen or nothing. I'll just dig a hole in the ground, hid his master's money. You know, that hid, that particular verb, it's not used very often in the New Testament. The only other time I think it's used in Matthew is when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, no one lights a candle and hides it under a bushel. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, that kind of thing. Here, it's the only other time we see a man do that. He, he hid this great gift that he had been given, just like a person hiding a candle under a bushel. Well, so much for the start of the story. It sets us up. It tells us a lot about the master and his goodness. It gets even better. Look at the rewards of the righteous. Of course, Jesus comes back, verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. I I think that's great. Uh, Jesus is telling his disciples, by the way, do you wanna know when the return of Jesus will be? I can tell you. In Matthew 25, 19, I can literally tell you when the return of Jesus will be after a long time. That's his timestamp, okay? So after a long time. So if anybody's like, well, it's been a long time. No, he's coming after a long time. So be ready. He came, it's time to settle accounts. And sure enough, the guy who'd been entrusted, in this great? Oh, I made five more. I, you know, I don't know, did he, does he settle accounts? There's, there's, there's people around. I, don't, I mean, was the servant like, like not even, I mean, he couldn't even wait to show him 100% return. I, I don't know. But he said, well done, good and faithful servant. This is, this is so, oh, so good. Look what the master says. You've been faithful over a little. How, how generous and rich is this, Matt? Five, I'm sorry, you've been faithful over a little. Really, $5 million is a little? Yeah, yeah, because you were faithful over that little, I'll, I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Again, this tells me so much about the master. One, he, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's wealthy, uh, uh, untold riches, but also that he's, he seems to be, he's so happy for this guy. It's like, who doesn't want to work for a boss like that? It's like he sees the potential in each person and you start to realize, I don't think it's about the bottom line with this guy. I don't think it's just about the money. I think it's about this person being developed into all that they could be. He's celebrating and he says, enter into your master's joy. That goes way beyond uh, uh, just saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did a good job with what you were entrusted with. There's a sense that, that he, this is about relationship with this person. It's incredible. One other beautiful thing about this. So the guy, um, the guy with five brings the, the five more, right? 
And it's celebratory. You've been faithful over a little, I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But let's be honest, there's Christian laborers. Some will be missionaries. Some will be, you know, church planters. Some will be martyrs. Some will work in fields of education or finance. Some will lead in business. Others will lead in homes, raising families. Everybody with me? There's all this different stuff. Don't you ever wonder, like, I mean, is my service really valuable? What, I mean, can you imagine the guy's, like, the guy's like sitting there with two million going, two million more. The guy's mind is going to be blown. I can't wait to show him. I had two, and with that two, I made four. This is, I mean, I, mean, I made two more. I've got four total. This is going to be great. And then he sees five million guy walk up. He's like, ah, well, that's a lot. But when the master talks to the guy with two, I want you to see something. He doesn't say, oh, you brought two. Oh, that's great. Did you see five guy over there? That's staggering, isn't it? There's no comparison. He's not mad. Let me show you side by side what the master said to five million guy and what he said to two million guy. Let me read what he said first to five million guy. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But to the guy who only had, he only brought two million, what he said to him was, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So, do you see how much God loves you? Christians, stop being so quick to compare yourself to other people or you just might miss what God wants to do through you. It's not a a comparison game. He's not in any way disappointed. He gave each according to his ability. Can you imagine an engineer who designs cars and all the cars that this company produces, all these cars, he makes all sorts, and they're all world-class vehicles. And he makes a sports car that makes all the gearheads, they go crazy. All the websites and magazines were talking about it. And this sports car, and it's sleek, and it's agile, and oh, it's handling Oh, man, and the top speed on this thing. But he also makes a big old dually pickup truck. Big old four-by-four power stroke. I painted it camo. You should see the gun rack on this thing, right? I'm talking about a big old powerful piece of farm equipment, right? And it's a world-class truck, and everybody's talking about that. And he makes a minivan, and it's like a, it's like a living room on the interstate. This thing is glorious. Huh? Let me ask you, is he disappointed? He is equally pleased with each world-class vehicle. He's equally pleased, and he's not disappointed. He does not get disappointed that this big old dually farm truck cannot go zero to 60 fast enough. No. And he's not mad that the sports car can't seem to pull the, 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 the torque it needs to pull the big old pieces of farm equipment like that truck can. Of course not. Why? Because each is designed, each labor, it's, it's doing exactly what it was designed to do. Christian, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Why? Partly because his yoke for you is custom fitted. You don't have to compare yourself. You're not looking to hear, well done, good and faithful servant from other people. You're only to please one. And look at his love for you. He's not disappointed because you don't have the giftings of somebody else. Or you do have these giftings and they're such a burden. Or the whatever. The five, the one he gave five, he made five more. Look at the rewards. The rewards are praise-filled approval. Oh, to hear, ponder that for a second. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let me tell you something about compliments. 
when it comes to a compliment, who said it matters. Fair? Isn't that fair? Your, your, your excitement over a compliment is in direct proportion to how much you value the opinion of the person who said it. That's just, that's just a fact. So if, if, if you do a piece of art and your favorite artist in the world hears about your piece of art and, and, and reposts it on social media with a, this, I've never seen anything like that. It's like, that compliment means so much more than if I walk by like, hey, that's, that's a really good dog. It's a duck. Okay, my bad. Like, you don't, right? Because I can't even draw a stick figure. So, so you're not impressed by that, right? Is that fair? Okay. Uh, and I don't, I, I, I don't want to uh, get too deep into this emotionally, but that's also why uh, ch- children who are deprived from ever hearing the blessing of their mom or dad is so emotionally crushing because they hold them in such high esteem, Right? So what would it mean for the Lord of heaven and earth to look at you when your race is done and say, well done, good and faithful servant? I don't know whether you've been approved a lot in your life or you haven't been approved a lot in your life. I'm telling you, your heart yearns and aches for those blessed words to be spoken. And that's what's out there. That's what's coming. And I I assure you, when you hear those words, it'll heal every heartache of this world. His words are healing words. Well done, good and faithful servant. He gives you the praise-filled approval. Then he gives you more responsibility. I can't, uh, I can't, I can't uh, explain this, but I dare not explain it away. So let me just touch on it. I, I preached a sermon series on heaven, I think in 2018. It's still up there. You can grab if you want more of this. But there's some sense in, some sense in which in the new heaven, new earth, that you and I, believers, will be ruling, reigning. We'll have administration, jurisdiction uh, with Jesus Christ in that coming kingdom. We'll have this responsibility, uh, and that's coming. He says... How does it work? Well, if you're going to rule over parts of new heaven, new earth, you're going to need the kind of character that you can be trusted, and the time you develop that character is now. And that's why he says, you show that you have that kind of character because you've been faithful over little. $5 million is not little unless you compare in the coming new heaven, new earth, you're going to be given jurisdiction over a city. Well, then, yeah, $5 million is a little compared to what's coming. Again, there's a lot of mystery here. Praise-filled approval, more responsibility, and the greatest of these, enter into your master's joy. The coming reward for those who are diligent, vigilant. We're filled with the love of God. We see it as a gift. It's an opportunity. We see the master for who he is. He's generous and he's good. This ultimately is the reward. C.S. Lewis says, joy is the serious business of heaven. That's what it is. That's what we're after. Ultimately, that's what we're after. What are, the, what are the five happiest moments in your life? They're different for everybody. Just scroll through some. Just scroll through. Let your mind go to the happiest moments in your life. Whatever it was, whatever you're thinking of right now, I know this. The giver, the one who gave you those happiest moments is God. If you trace it back, every one of those moments, they came from God. So if those are the five happiest moments of your life and they came from God, all I'm saying is you have not even begun to scratch the surface of the depth of the joy of God. Every time I do a wedding, I try to put this in here. I'm standing before the bride and the groom and they always look so happy and everybody's beaming and and everybody's just so happy, you know? And um, I I hope they are ostensibly there. 
But I always say this. I always say, who's the happiest person in this room right now? And it's a trick question because you might say, well, it's the bride. You know, she's just beaming. Or no, it's the groom. Look at him. He's crying. He's so excited. Or, or it's the, the mother of the bride or the father of the groom. No, no, no. The happiest person in the room is God. Always. He's going, I, I did this. See? The, 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 I'm the source of all that is good. And all, every good and perfect gift, it comes from God. So joy is out there. Oh, the rewards of the righteous. I wish we could end right there, but we cannot. It ends, as you know, as a word of judgment. And so we had the start of the story. It started promising. We had the rewards of the righteous, but I'm calling this last point the lie of the enemy. The lie of the enemy is when, is when Satan gets a person to doubt the goodness of God. It goes, it's the original lie. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden to get Adam and Eve to think, you know, God's really holding out on you. Did he really say that? Uh, I, think, I think he doesn't want you to self-actualize. Uh, God's holding out on you. And there's a lie in this third servant. There's a lie. He believed, he's got this false narrative built up about the master. When he who had, verse 24, he also had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. And the reader wants to stop and be like, what? Like, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? I mean, the guy has given $5 million and $2 million and $1 million. Then he goes away, does all his investing. And then he did each one according to his ability. And he doesn't compare. And he's happy and he celebrates. And in the end, we're going to find out he's actually going to let the guys keep all the money. This is so incredibly generous. That's why we're shocked when the guy's like, listen, everybody knows you're kind of a jerk. I know you're a hard man hard, like a rock, merciless, you know, you're always reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. He impugns the character of this master who's been nothing but generous or gracious. And so he says, and he realizes probably when he sees the $5 million guy and the $2 million guy, he goes, uh-oh. And he sees his $1 million and uh, moth and rust called inflation have eaten into the value of that one million. And so he, uh, he says, well, it, it's really because of you and because of your bad character, verse 25, I was afraid. And I was afraid and so I hid, uh, uh, I, I, I hid it and, and, and here it is. But his master knows, like, wait, in an honor-shame culture, you've dishonored me. I've given you this massive gift and basically what you've said is, what I've done with your gift is what I think of you. And so and he's like, and, and the nerve to be like, well, this is your fault because you're so mean and harsh. He's like, that's a lie. He says, I was afraid. No, you weren't afraid. Because listen, it would be fair if, if Jesus told the story and he says, now this third guy in, in investing and in finance, we call this risk tolerance. This third guy didn't have the same risk tolerance as the other two. And so he wanted to play it safe. Well, that's no sin to not have a high risk tolerance, but he calls him out. He said, it's not because you were afraid. Why? Because if you were truly afraid that you were going to lose value on the investment, you could have at least done what? What's he say? You, you could have put it, verse 27, you could have invested it with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have at least gotten it. What's a guaranteed rate of return, even though it's not as impressive as these equity guys? You ever heard of a CD? You could have done something, right? Fair? That's what he's saying. He's like, no, 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 no. So, so don't, don't say that this is because you were so scared or I was so harsh. This is your character issue. What does he say? You wicked, slothful servant. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10. In verse 29, Jesus drops this profound line. For to everyone who has, more will be given and have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he ha has will be taken away. Well, this is a metaphor 
but this is really so profound. It's absolutely true. Um, I have seen this, let me do this briefly. I, I have seen this happen from relationships of people to people, and I've also seen this happen when it comes to relationships between people and God. The people to people I might deal with first, and I'll help you understand what I mean. I call it the lenses. You guys ever heard my theory on lenses? Have you heard my thing on lenses? So when you put the lenses on, when you get it in your head that this person is against me, you put on a pair of lenses and it begins to shade and filter and adjust every interaction you have a certain way. When you're convinced they're against me, they're against me, then what starts to happen is every time they do something that kind of upsets you a little bit, you go, see, see, told you, because it's coming through those filters and getting amplified and going, see, see, I, I know what they meant. Why? Because you're just certain you've got the narrative about this person. I know what they meant. I know what they said, but I know, I know what they meant when they looked at me and said, good morning. I know. Really, bro? Because um, I don't have the lenses on. It looked to me like somebody was just saying good morning. No, you don't know them like I know them. I see this lens, and because I know they're against me, because I know they're against me, I know what good morning really meant. So all the negative stuff gets amplified, and you're just certain you've got it right. And all the positive stuff, if they ever do anything good, here's what the lenses are. They're blockers. They're, 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 they're blessing blockers. No good can get through. You can't see it at all. Everything you do gets, it gets all twisted because you're certain that this person is against you. It's a terribly frustrating situation to be in. So that even when they do something good, they, you know, I know, you know, they offer you a delicious piece of peppermint. Ha! So you're saying my breath stinks. You know? It's like, what? No, right? I mean, really, have you ever been in a situation like this? It feels like no matter what you say, you just dig the hole deeper because they're convinced you are against them. You're like, I'm not against you, but now everything I do, even when I try to make it right, right? So that, that happens person to person. Watch this. I've seen that in my ministry. I've seen that over and over again. Once people get the lenses on with God, he's against me. Then everything he does... All the blessings, they're completely blocked. People can't see them. And if anything in their circumstances don't go right, they go, see, this proves it. He's not good and I can't trust him and he's against me. This third servant, this is as plain as I can, this is, what, this is the point. This is what's on my heart to get to you today. It's all in how this guy viewed his master. This whole story is about how do you view your soon coming king? Can he be trusted? Is he for you? Is he against you? That is going to absolutely change how you invest the king's resources. The musicians are going to come, and I want to give you these two thoughts. I'll put them up here on the screen. So Brandon will come and prepare our hearts for clothes, and we'll have a time of invitation. But, but, but think through this with me. If what I'm saying is right, that, 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 that this guy had a very contrasting portrait of who Jesus was. He had this false narrative built up in his mind. Then the application is this. To here's how to live as someone who's going to stay ready for the kingdom of God. Someone who looks around at all their resources. Now in this story, the main resource, obviously the, the, the resource was money. But of course, it could be other things. You look at all of it. It's all God's. And you say, you say my king is coming soon. He's good. He's for me. He's generous. He wants me to grow and to have this character. He wants, he's got even more for me. I'm going to tap into that coming joy. If that's who it is, then today at once, I'm going to be investing everything I have in kingdom work, living for the kingdom. But if I think he is evil, 
mean, and, and he's always against me, and he doesn't want the best for me, and he always wants to hold back on his blessing. I'm going to bury what I have in the ground because i got to feel safe around that kind of God. Two things I'm going to put up on the screen. Here's the first one. This is convicting. Let this question go to your heart. How you invest the king's resources right now reveal what you think of the king. It doesn't reveal it to me. You don't have to answer to me. You're not going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't, it doesn't, okay, it's not me. I mean, I'm going to tell you, well done. I'm an encourager. I'm, hey, hey, hey. But at the end of the day, you don't answer to me. I don't answer ultimately to, right? I mean, you, right? This is you and God. How are you right now investing the king's resources? Because it reveals what you think of the king. Can he be trusted? Is he for you? That is super convicting. At least it is to me. If it is convicting, this is the second thing I want to tell you. If that is convicting, the answer is not white knuckle, work harder, do better, make new promises. No, don't despair, Christian. If that's convicting, just get to know your king. Get to know him more and more. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Hmm? Look at who he is. Look at what he's done. And the more you get to know your Lord, the more you get to know this master who's coming back for us, the more you will begin to invest in a way that reflects what you know Jesus to be. Because the story ends, he kicks those servants out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know when Jesus said that? In about a day, he was going to Calvary. Where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth most painful, excruciating death on the cross. He himself was headed to that place of darkness. Wasn't there darkness over the land when he was crucified? He was going to the place that third servant had to go to. He was going there so that nobody would ever have to go there. He himself was going to the weeping and gnashing of teeth so that you and I could do what? We could enter into our master's joy. Let's pray. Oh God, grant to us a fresh passion to invest your resources and all that we have in this glorious 24 hours you give us every day called one day. Grant, God, that we could live in a way that is really staying ready by vigilance and diligence. Grant that we would not be found wicked or slothful, but out of love, out of knowing your character, that gospel good news of what you did for us would lead us to see you as incredibly generous, incredibly wise, so faithful and worthy of every good endeavor. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.